So I hope everybody can now see that clearly. So good evening once again, my dear brothers and sisters. That's the, the subject that uh, we're going to speak on. Uh, and clearly the Corinthians basis is going to be that 13th chapter that we've just read. What we want to do is to illustrate the links between 1 Corinthians 13 and the 34th chapter of Exodus, in particular verses 5 to 7, where you remember Moses was hid in a cleft of the rock and God revealed to him his glory, his name and his character. Uh, and once again, um, as with the, uh, the previous study, we believe that there are very intimate links between these two passages of Scripture. Uh, the one is based on the other. And what we want to show is that love, uh, and remember that that is the translation in this chapter of the Greek word agape, is a characteristic of God's glory, his moral glory, his character, his name. And of course, that is uh, a series of characteristics that God requires us, called to be saints, to develop. We often use that phrase, God manifestation. Uh, and what we mean by that is that in our lives, we should seek to demonstrate and manifest the aspects of God's character that were revealed to Moses and which we believe are, are here opened up for us uh, in some more detail um, in this chapter in Corinthians. Um, I think you may have had a similar experience to myself in times past. I've heard this chapter expanded in a, in a rather sentimental way. Um, and, and that's always a danger, I think, with uh, dealing with this characteristic of love. It, it's not sentimental in the human sense at all, because it essentially is the essence of God's character, God's glory, that we are required to develop in our own lives before Christ. And in developing that subject, of course, we shall seek to exhort ourselves to do precisely that, to manifest Yahweh in our lives, to put into practice those principles of God manifestation. But I think it's worth just pausing before we plunge in and asking ourselves, well, why is love the greatest of these qualities. Uh, that last verse of the chapter, now abide a faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why does the inspired apostle single out love as the greatest of those three? Because after all, faith is vital. Writing to the Hebrews, Paul tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So faith is vitally important for the saints. And hope surely is similarly important. We could have quoted many verses uh, from the scriptures, particularly from the New Testament, dealing with hope. We just selected that, that one from Romans 15 as an example. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So one of the whole objects of the scriptures being inspired and written down and preserved for us is that through our knowledge of them, our understanding of them, uh, we might have hope, hope of eternal life 
in the kingdom of God uh, beyond the, the resurrection morn, um, thinking back to our first study. So faith and hope are absolutely vital parts of the character of the saint. So why is love the greatest? Well, I think the, the answer is that faith and hope are not divine characteristics. God doesn't require faith. He is above that, so to speak. He doesn't require hope. He is from everlasting to everlasting. But love is a divine quality, a divine characteristic that we are asked to develop and to imitate. And I suggest that that's, that's the difference. And that's why love is singled out as the greatest of those three. So let's just look at uh, the introduction to, to that chapter. Uh, th that little section of Corinthians chapters 12, 13 and 14. Um, really, the context is Paul dealing with one of the issues that's um, possibly have been raised with him by the brethren in Corinth, or if not, that he saw that it was necessary to deal with, that is to say, with uh, Holy Spirit gifts and the way in which they were used within the Ecclesia. Uh, and he makes it clear in those chapters that the Holy Spirit gifts, which were available, of course, in the, in the first century Ecclesia, though they're no longer available, um, were, were good, they were vital for the development of the Ecclesia and for the instruction of the brethren and sisters. But he then makes it clear that there was something better, something more important, the development of a godlike character. Just go to the last verse of chapter 12. He says, covet earnestly the best gifts. And he's been talking about various uh, Holy Spirit gifts in that 12th chapter. He says, covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. For though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So the Holy Spirit gifts were good. They were vital at the time when they were present, but they, they were a temporary expedient, so to speak, um, until the word of God was complete. But the most important thing was for the disciple to seek to develop a godlike character. So let's go back to the Exodus background, to what we believe is the Old Testament passage, which is the basis of much of 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go to Exodus chapter 33. Remember that the, the overall background to this is the incident with the golden calf that we alluded to in our first talk. When the nation of Israel had come out of Egypt and had encamped at Sinai, they had entered into a covenant as a nation with God. They promised to obey all his commandments. But only a matter of weeks later, with the incident of the golden calf, that covenant was broken, symbolized by Moses breaking the two tablets of stone uh, on which were written the Ten Commandments when he came down from the mount. And Moses must have felt very desolated at that time. He and, and just a few others in the nation were still faithful to that covenant. And so it's in that context that we have this plea from Moses in verse 18 of chapter 33. Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. He pleaded with God to reveal to him his glory, to show that um, 
he was still with the nation, he was still with Moses, but his purpose hadn't been abandoned. And the response, initially, verse 19, Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I think the two number of points come out of that verse. Notice, first of all, at the end of the verse, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God is saying, my covenant now is with individuals, those who respond to me, my glory, my name. The nation as a whole has broken that covenant, but I will be merciful and gracious to those individuals who still respond to me. And he also says, I'll make my goodness pass before thee and I'll proclaim my name before thee and then what he does having hidden Moses in the cleft of the rock we go into chapter 34 and verse 5 Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh and Yahweh passed by before him and proclaimed Yahweh Yahweh ale merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So Moses' plea was, show me thy glory. And what God actually revealed to him was his goodness, his name, and putting together those facets of those verses in chapter 34, his character which put all those together, they constitute the glory of Yahweh, his goodness, his name, and the various aspects of his character. And of course, those same characteristics were manifested by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come over into the opening chapter of John's Gospel record, the apostle records this in verse 14. The word was made flesh, referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, just like Moses, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that, that, those last few words of that verse, full of grace and truth, encapsulate and summarise all the various facets of God's goodness, name, and glory and character that were revealed to Moses in Exodus 34. So, uh, as we reminded, as Jesus reminded his disciples in John chapter 14, when Philip asked him, show us the Father, he said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, because he displayed to perfection the goodness, the name, the character, the glory of Yahweh, his Father. And those same characteristics, we believe, are embedded in the agape love, of 1 Corinthians 13. Now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these, because it's uh, a characteristic of God himself that we are required to develop, the greatest of these is love. Now that table on the screen, <coughs> excuse me, that table on the screen attempts to, to, to summarize the, the linkage between these, these various passages. You've got down the left-hand side, the key words um, in, verse, in verses 6 and 7 from Exodus 34. Um, the second column shows the, the Hebrew uh, word that is there translated. Um, 
then those are summarized in John chapter one, full of grace and truth. Uh, and don't overlook the words full of. They are picking up the word abundant from Exodus 34. All these characteristics are part of God's character and his glory, and they're abundant. He's full of them, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was. Uh, and then we suggest that all those there are then focused into that love, that agape love in 1 Corinthians 13 that we are asked to develop. Before we trace the links in detail between 1 Corinthians 13 and Exodus 34, I'd like to go in briefly into 2 Corinthians because um, the only chapter, well, most, in fact, of 2 Corinthians has a lot of references back to Exodus 34 and its whole context. Um, so we just summarize some of these, these things briefly as part of the background. Um, chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul opens by referring to uh, his previous letter uh, that he'd written to them. Uh, verse 1, I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness, for if I made you sorry, if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy in the, is the joy of you all. And we recall that in his first letter, he'd had to deal with some very serious problems uh, in the Ecclesia. Um, he then joined uh, repentance on those who had uh, sinned, um, exhorted the Ecclesia to exert the appropriate discipline on the offenders. Um, but he's now saying, well, that there was repentance uh, and therefore he wants to come with, with a slightly different attitude. Um, go down to verse 9. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Uh, and so he's, he's commenting on those previous problems, the way they've been dealt with, and that uh, there had been repentance and forgiveness had been offered. Now going to chapter 3, verse 2. He says, ye, Corinthian brethren and sisters, are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. So what Paul seems to be saying to these brethren and sisters in Corinth is, you are actually a manifestation now of the character of God in your lives and in the way you've behaved in the Ecclesia, you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ written by us, not with ink, but in fleshy tables of the heart. This principle of God manifestation in practice once again. And then in the latter part of chapter three, he quite explicitly refers back to um, Moses going into Mount Sinai, into the presence of Yahweh uh, and the glory being revealed to him. Um, and when Moses came down the mount, you remember that um, his face shone and the children of Israel asked him to put a veil on his face because of that uh, visible glory. Chapter 3, verse 9. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, uh, and that ministration of condemnation is, is the law, um, there was glory displayed, but of course that glory was to be destroyed ultimately. Much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. So he's contrasting the glory of the law seen visibly in Moses with 
uh, even greater glory revealed in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in his righteousness. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth, again, the contrast. For if that which is done away was glorious, the law has passed away, remember, by the time Paul is writing this, the veil of the temple has been rent in twain. Um, Christ has fulfilled the law. Uh, he's conquered sin and death. He's been raised from the dead. Much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away at the reading of the law of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. You see, when the children of Israel insisted on Moses putting on that veil, it wasn't simply because they couldn't stand the visible brightness of the glory. It was because in their minds they were blinded and they couldn't look beyond the law to what the law was really teaching them about, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he says at the end of verse 14 there, that veil is done away in Christ. Um, Israel failed to see that. The veil is still on their hearts and minds. But we, by the grace of God, can see that glory of Yahweh manifested in Christ, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. But we all, with open face, with no veil on our face, no veil on our hearts and minds, we can see the glory of God in the scriptures revealed in, the, in Christ. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I think it's just worth commenting on that phrase being changed from, changed into the same image from glory to glory. What does the apostle mean by that? I suggest what he means is that we, without a veil on our hearts and minds, with open face, can see the glorious character of Yahweh revealed in the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, that moral glory to which we can aspire, which we should seek to develop uh, as we progress through our discipleship. And if we do progress in that way and we do develop to some extent that moral glory in our lives, when the Lord returns, we will be changed and inherit that physical glory of a, a divine nature being partakers of the divine nature being changed from glory to glory and just quickly going into chapter four we have been enlightened by that glory and the character of Yahweh and we must strive to manifest it now this first um, six of chapter four for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God we know about the glory of God. How? Because we see it in the face of Jesus Christ, which is revealed in the scriptures. And we have to strive, and it is a strife often, to manifest it in our lives now. Verse 11. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. We have to strive to manifest that same character that Jesus manifested in our mortal flesh now to the best of our ability. Even though we might be delivered unto death as Paul was in persecution, 
and we have to seek, of course, to crucify day by day the old man of the flesh. So let's start to trace some of these linkages between these two chapters. First one, this, this word long-suffering that occurs in Exodus 34, verse 6. Well, look back to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and we can readily see um, how that principle is picked up as uh, one of the characteristics of love. Verse 4, love suffereth long. Verse 5, um, love is not easily provoked. Or verse 7, love beareth all things. You see the connection between the two, that the facet of God's character, which is long-suffering, Paul quite explicitly three times picks it up um, as a characteristic of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Truth. Well, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoiceth in the truth. And we say there uh, on the screen, love isn't sentimental. That's not the way to understand this, this chapter in Corinthians, but it's based on truth. Come back to, to John chapter 1 again. Um, we already uh, commented on verse 14, but it's worth just repeating that verse because it's an absolutely foundation verse, really, uh, in our understanding of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're reminded there, of course, of Paul's um, comment in uh, the Romans about the character of God, the goodness and the severity of God. There's mercy, um, but there is also severity and judgment for those who do not obey the commandments of God and who despise his words. It's full of grace and truth the grace is based upon truth and similarly verse 17 of john 1 the law was given by moses but grace and truth came by jesus christ so truth is equally an important facet of love uh, that is brought out in 1 corinthians 13 based on that revelation of the glory of god in exodus 34 Abundant. It's easy to overlook that word, um, but it's an equally important part along with the other facets of the glory and the character of God. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 13. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But verse 10, when that which is perfect is come or complete, when that which is complete is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, in the context, of course, of these three chapters where the apostle was dealing with Holy Spirit gifts um, in the first century ecclesia, that which is in part refers to the fact that at the time when the, the Holy Spirit gifts were in operation, the written, inspired written word was not fully complete. But once that was complete, the Holy Spirit gifts were withdrawn. Um, so just go back just to, to, to demonstrate that. If you go back to, to verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Well, 
no nothing that's prophesied in scripture will fail that's not what the verse means it's referring to the gift of prophecy whether they be the gift of prophecies they shall fail there will come a time says the apostle when the gift of prophecy will cease whether there be tongues the gift of tongues they shall cease and so the holy spirit gifts were withdrawn when once the word was complete then that which is in part the time when the holy spirit gifts were in operation uh, was done away and there's a deliberate contrast there i think with abundant contrast with in part but when that which is in part is done away that's when that which is abundant comes to fruition when the inspired word was complete that word which by the grace of god has been handed down to us um, it, just it, just quickly um on that subject it's worth going back into second corinthians um just to emphasize uh, the extent to which this second epistle refers back to that chapter uh, in Exodus, Exodus 34. Just, just pick on these, these words of grace, truth and abundance. Just two verses of examples, chapter 4 and verse uh, 15. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. So you've got that words that abundant and grace and glory. Come over to chapter eight for another example. Um, and verse nine. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the grace that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And there surely in the, in the, the use of the word rich is the idea of, of abundance, the grace of God, that we might be rich, that we might have the hope of salvation. Uh, and if you just scan your, your, your eyes through chapters eight and nine, you get verse after verse referring to the grace of God, abundance, abounded, bountifully. It, it runs right through uh, the, those two chapters and is clearly picking up those principles from the Old Testament. Moving on, love rejoiceth not in iniquity, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians and verse 6, rejoiceth not in iniquity. Well, part of the character of Yahweh was that he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the second and the third generation. Now, that principle, uh, in, indeed the whole um, revelation of Yahweh's character, it, is picked up many times in the Old Testament. Let's just look at two examples in Deuteronomy. First of all, in chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9. Remember, this is looking at the point, love rejoiceth not in iniquity, picking up the phrase from Exodus 34, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 9, thou shalt not bear down thyself unto them to idols, graven images, nor serve them, for I, Yahweh thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So you notice there the repetition of this principle that God is a jealous God, and he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Um, showing mercy, yes, but notice the conditional element to it. We'll, we'll keep repeating this. Showing mercy unto thousands who of them that love me 
and keep my commandments. So the mercy of God is abundant, but there are conditions attached to it. Chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, um, verse 9 again. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face, because he will by no means clear the guilty, and because the faithful disciple imitating the Lord Jesus Christ rejoiceth not in iniquity, one of the characteristics of love. And therefore, the exhortation is, Deuteronomy 7, verse 11, Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. And that is an obligation that is placed on us, just as it was on the nation of Israel. The veil on his face. Moses came down from the mount because his face shone so brightly. Um, the people appealed to him to put a veil on his face, which he did. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 seems to pick up that idea, at least the sense of it, in that phrase in verse 12. Now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, we'll come to that in a moment. Now we see through a glass darkly as if through a veil because at the time when the apostle was speaking or writing i should say the written scriptures were not complete that which was complete hadn't yet come once the word was complete then the full revelation of yahweh's glory in the face of jesus christ was made available to the saints in christ uh, and again, we come back to that lesson um, that the Apostle refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the fact that they asked Moses to put a veil on his face wasn't to do with the physical brightness, essentially. It was because there was a veil on their hearts and minds. They couldn't see beyond the law. They couldn't see what the law was really trying to teach them because the Lord Jesus Christ was right through the law in every element of it. It was trying to teach them about faith, about grace, about forgiveness that could be obtained through that faithful Messiah who was to come. Just go back to 2 Corinthians 3 uh, and just read those verses again um, in verse 13. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 13. Not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away at the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. The veil on the face is the veil on the heart. But of course, we don't have that veil. We can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Which leads us on to that, that phrase, face to face, back in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And of course, that, that, that's an exact quotation from words in Exodus 33. Let's come back to Exodus 33. Earlier, earlier on in the, the discourse between Yahweh and Moses, uh, we quoted Moses' plea in verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. 
you go back to verse 11, Yahweh spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend, and he turned again into the camp. So God spake face to face, presumably through the Yahweh angel, to Moses. Um, special privilege. Uh, and that's the phrase that's picked up by the apostle uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. When the scriptures are complete, we will see face to face. We will be able to fully understand the revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're still in Exodus, um, look at verse 17 and, and see how this idea of God speaking to Moses face to face is expanded a little further. Verse 17 of Exodus 33. Yahweh said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast spoken, thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. God knew Moses by name. That was how close the relationship was. His name was and still is in the book of life. And we pray that ours will be also. And there's a similar development of that, that same close, intimate relationship that existed between Moses and the father in those words from Numbers chapter 12. With him, with Moses, will I speak mouth to mouth, not in dark speeches. It was a direct communication with his servant. And that is the hope that is set before us, I suggest, brothers and sisters. We'll quote those words there from John's first epistle. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, face to face, as it were. We shall see the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of all his glory, both moral and physical glory. And then there's that phrase, the end of um, Exodus 33, where God tells Moses that he would hide him in a cleft of the rock, and he said, you'll see my back parts. Now, the, the Hebrew there apparently has the sense, or can have the sense of hereafter or time to come. And it occurs in Isaiah chapter 41, uh, which gives us a, a clue as to the sense of this phrase. Isaiah 41 and verse 23. Um, this is God is challenging Israel's uh, desire to worship idols, challenging the idols to be able to foretell the future. Verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Could the idols tell the future? Of course they couldn't. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. They couldn't do anything because they're merely lifeless. But that word hereafter, they show the things that are to come hereafter, is apparently the same Hebrew as is translated my back parts in Exodus 33. I think therefore the sense of that passage back in Exodus 33 is God is saying through that revelation of his glory, his character, his name to Moses, he's showing him the future. He's showing him that ultimately this is the glory that will be revealed when all flesh shall see it together, as, as Isaiah comments elsewhere. And of course, idols can't foretell the future, but Yahweh can and does in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So back in Isaiah 41, verse 28, for I beheld and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counsellor that when I asked of them could answer a word. Behold, they're all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. Idols are nothing. But through the glory of God that is revealed, Moses and we can look to the future. 
Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now, all those ideas, brothers and sisters, are, as suggest, picked up in 1 Corinthians 13. First of all, in verse 7, as a characteristic of love, love hopeth all things, looks to the future. Now abideth, verse 13, hope. One of those three characteristics that is essential for the saint to develop. Or picking up those ideas from Exodus. So we've traced those seven links so far. Long suffering, truth, abundant, will by no means clear the guilty, veil on his face, the face to face, and my back parts. But there's some aspects I'd like just to develop a little further of this agape love um, as it's set out in 1 Corinthians 13, manifestation of God's character, name, and glory. I'd like to look at it from three perspectives. First of all, from the perspective of the word kind, which occurs in 1 Corinthians 13, and from the perspective of those other two characteristics that are mentioned there from Exodus 34, forgiving and goodness. Back to that table again that, that we, we saw earlier. I've just highlighted some of the points I want to develop, starting with kind, love is kind. Um, that's in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, love suffereth long and is kind. I'd like to look at the aspect of forgiving. Character of God is forgiving and see how that's um, portrayed in love in 1 Corinthians 13. And also to look at um, goodness, the goodness of Yahweh. Notice that the word that's translated goodness is the Hebrew word chesed, which actually occurs twice in that passage in Exodus 34, once translated goodness and once translated mercy. So love is kind. I've put there on the screen a quotation um, of Exodus 34 from Nehemiah chapter 9. Thou art a God ready to pardon, says Nehemiah, gracious, merciful, slow in anger. All three words in the Hebrew taken out of Exodus 34. And of great kindness. That's the word chesed. It's translated as goodness and mercy in Exodus 34. Here it's translated kindness. And this is one of God's characteristics. So he didn't forsake Israel. So... That word chesed, goodness and mercy in Exodus 34, is also kindness. Nehemiah 9 tells us that. And we get the same idea in Psalm 51. Let's just look at the opening opening verse of Psalm 51. We know that's the psalm, one of the psalms, uh, which is a confession of David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he says, Psalm 51, verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And there the word loving kindness translates this Hebrew word chesed. So in Exodus 34, it's goodness and mercy. Nehemiah 9, it's kindness. Psalm 51, it's loving kindness. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is kind. Love is manifesting this, these aspects of Yahweh's character. And we just notice in passing uh, that that verse in Psalm 51, verse 1, 
word, the words mercy, multitude, and mercies. The original Hebrew words are closely related to the exact Hebrew words that occur in Exodus 34. Still thinking about love being kind, come over to Psalm 103, please. Psalm 103, verse 4, speaking of God, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and mercies. Loving kindness, that's this Hebrew word chesed again, and mercies, uh, Hebrew word racham, uh, again closely related to one of the words in Exodus 34. So when we think of the, the kind aspect, love is kind, uh, of, of the agape love, it shows the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the forgiveness aspects of Yahweh's character. But again, we emphasize and we need to remember this point because we trust in the Father's mercy. We need the Father's mercy. Without the Father's mercy, we would have no hope. But it is not unconditional. Psalm 103, verse 17 the mercy of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Second of those three facets we wanted to develop, looked at love is kind, what about the forgiving aspect? Love suffereth long, 1 Corinthians 13 Verse 4, love suffereth long. God is prepared to forgive, provided there is a repentance. He's prepared to forgive. Exodus 34 tells us he's prepared to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now that sequence is interesting. There's three words, in, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Because under the law, there was no sacrifice for transgression, the Hebrew word pesha, which signifies rebellion, a deliberate rebellion and disobedience to the commands of God. Except on one occasion, the only occasion when there was a sacrifice that could be offered for transgression was on the Day of Atonement. We won't look at it in the interest of time, but uh, Leviticus 16, verses 16 and verse 21, we're told that one, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement could cover transgression as well as iniquity and sin. It's the only occasion in the law when there was a sacrifice for transgression. It's been suggested that, that in some senses the Day of Atonement was in a way outside the law because it was the only day on which the high priest could go beyond the veil um, into the most holy place, into the presence of the Yahweh angel. It was taking us, taking Israel, if they could only see the lesson uh, beyond the law, to the time when grace would be available, when the law, when, when the veil would be taken down um, through the perfect sacrifice of God's only Son. That, of course, is developed uh, in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The next slide I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but it's a similar table to, to what you've seen before, showing a comparison between Exodus 34, Psalm 103, and 1 Corinthians 13. And just really designed to, to illustrate, first of all, the forgiveness, sorry, the, the focus on forgiveness in Psalm 103, along with the, the various links to those other two chapters, Psalm uh, Exodus 34 and 1 Corinthians 13. 
So there, there you see on the left hand side that the, the various uh, words, English and Hebrew, that are used in Exodus 34. Psalm 103, you see the, 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 the links, the similarities, um, but a particular emphasis, I think, on forgiveness there. That, that's the thrust of Psalm 103. Not unconditional forgiveness, but forgiveness nonetheless. Uh, and the ideas picked up in 1 Corinthians 13, love suffereth long, love is kind. Uh, and those words embody so many of those characteristics um, in those earlier passages. Um, just looking at the left-hand column there, the, the, the top two words, merciful and gracious, we haven't traced through specifically the links with, from those uh, words, merciful, chachum, and gracious, chanun, but they are aspects of Yahweh's glory that, that are surely linked into the ideas of love suffereth long, love is kind, of aspects of God's character. <clears throat> so love suffereth long, is kind, is forgiving. We've seen that in Psalm 103. And God has made a covenant. Psalm 103 told us that God has made a covenant to forgive on these conditions. And Hebrews 6, let's come into Hebrews because th these lessons in Hebrews, I think, are very interesting. Psalm 103 tells us God's made a covenant and he's kept it. He will keep it. Hebrews 6, verse 16. For verily, for men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show, show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So God has made a covenant. He's sworn twice uh, when he, he swore to Abraham after Abraham had uh, shown he was prepared to offer Isaac in sacrifice. And in Psalm 110, he swore that um, Lord Jesus Christ will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Two immutable oaths. Those promises and those oaths, that covenant that God has made, leads to forgiveness. So if you come over now to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my law into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The law is done away. There has been one perfect sacrifice and God has covenanted on the basis of that sacrifice to those who are faithful and do his commandments, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. God has done his part, but we have to do ours. Now come down to verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. I don't know if you've noticed, brothers and sisters, but you've got the same sequence of faith, hope and love as we've got at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 22 there, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. But in fact, the Greek word translated faith there is the word elpis, normally translated as hope. And in verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love, the agape love of 1 Corinthians 13. 
And just consider the words that Paul uses there. The word consider, the Greek means to perceive thoroughly with their minds. Not just giving a passing attention to, it's considering carefully, thinking about, meditating on, perceiving thoroughly. And the word provoke means to excite, to stimulate. Is there not an exhortation there to us, brothers and sisters, to that we should seek to understand each other's spiritual needs and then to stimulate and excite one another concerning spiritual matters and scriptural matters. And that's surely what we're trying to do in these studies today. Moving on fairly quickly, because our time has, has really gone now. The third facet of agape love we wanted to look at was goodness. Goodness, a key characteristic of Yahweh, it's specified in Exodus 34. The Hebrew word chesed is translated as goodness. It's also translated as mercy. Um, it's the only word that occurs twice in that passage in Exodus 34, which I think tells us that it's an important word. Um, describe it there as a multifaceted word, because when we develop that word through scripture, it seems to have so many aspects to it. And um, we can see some of those in 1 Corinthians 13. Just go back there, verse 4. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. And just apply those characteristics, first of all, to God. Envieth not vaunteth not itself, not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. And those are the characteristics that we are asked to develop as well in our lives. Some other aspects of the goodness of Yahweh. Psalm 103 verse 17, the mercy of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, eternal. The mercy of God, the goodness of God is eternal. And Psalm 89, just come quickly to Psalm 89. You know it's a messianic psalm that speaks a lot about the, the covenants of promise and particularly the Davidic covenant. There's another, another aspect of this which is, is quite interesting. Um, verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of Yahweh forever. With my mouth I will make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. Verse 14, justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Verse 24, but my faithfulness and my mercy, says God, shall, shall be with him, with the Messiah. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. And finally, verse 28, my mercy will I keep for him forevermore. And my covenant shall stand fast with him. You notice there the repeated um, mention of mercy. Um, the, the chesed, the mercy, or the goodness of Yahweh. But did you notice how there is repeated there the aspect of faithfulness? It comes in verse 1. It came in verse 2. Um, it's mentioned in verse 24 again that we looked at. Um, and it's mentioned implicitly in verse 28 because God's covenant will stand forevermore. Uh, it's interesting that the... Revised Standard Translation, which uh, Brother Barry used in his reading of 1 Corinthians 13, in Exodus, uh, sorry, in, in the New Testament, it, it, uh, sorry, in Exodus, it translates the word chesed as steadfast love. Uh, and that seems to be picking up this, this aspect of the faithfulness 
of God's love and mercy. So there, there is a lovely contrast between God's goodness and his mercy and his love and the natural characteristics of man. We read in Hosea, oh Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. Man's goodness is worthless. It passes away like a vapour. But God's goodness, his mercy, is from everlasting to everlasting, because he is a faithful God. His love is steadfast. So let's draw to a conclusion with some exhortations. This agape love is a characteristic of Yahweh. And when Paul expounds it in 1 Corinthians 13, it's intimately based, we suggest, on the revelation of Yahweh's glory, his name and his character revealed in Exodus chapter 34. And these characteristics, this glory, the saints are asked to develop, to manifest God in our lives, as we've noted already from those words in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's multifaceted, multidimensional. All, all these aspects there are part of love, mercy, goodness, long-suffering, forgiving, gracious, kind, truthful, pitying, faithful, enduring, abundant in all these aspects and looking in hope to fulfilment of Yahweh's sworn covenants. And if we can even go some way to develop those characteristics in our lives, we will be to some extent manifesting God and his glory and his character in the way that we live. Let's conclude in 2 Corinthians, just by quickly running through a series of verses which will allow us to draw to a conclusion. Verse 18 of chapter 3, then our perception of God, Yahweh's glory changes. We behold his face with open face as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. We're changed into the same image from glory to glory. Let the, our perception of the glory of God change us day by day. Because we have received mercy. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We've received mercy. So let's renounce the things of the flesh and seek to manifest the truth in our lives and manifest the light of Yahweh's glory that's been revealed to us. Verse 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And let's do that in a life of sacrifice in our mortal bodies because we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Verse 11, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, that we might manifest the character that the Lord Jesus Christ showed in our mortal lives. And above all, brothers and sisters, don't be cast down, but focus on the glory that shall be revealed. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. first began pursuing this study several years ago when a, a brother pointed out to me something that I hadn't uh, noticed before, that there were a number of connections between the book of Ecclesiastes and the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and indeed, when you look into it, as I hope to show this afternoon, God willing, there are uh, quite a number of both verbal links and thematic links between those two sections of scripture. Now, I suppose it might seem on the face of it uh, like a rather academic and possibly a rather dry study. But actually, I think when you pursue it and see what is quite clearly a divinely designed contrast between these two sections of scripture, the result is that each of the sections of scripture, the book of, the book of Ecclesiastes on the one hand and the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians are thrown into even sharper perspective than if we simply looked at them on their own. Uh, the message of both of them becomes very, very clear uh, and therefore I think as we hope to show a very encouraging. So, the objectives, as I say, are to, to show the, these links and in particular the contrasts between the book of Ecclesiastes and 1 Corinthians 15. And we divided our study into to three main sections. First of all, we're going to look at the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and on the other hand, the theme of preaching the gospel in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Secondly, the linked themes of labor, vanity, and things done under the sun in Ecclesiastes compared to um, our theme, your labor is not in vain in the Lord, taken of course from the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. And then thirdly, perhaps rather briefly, to look at the contrast between mortality and death, which are presented to us very starkly in Ecclesiastes. And on the, on the other hand, of course, the overriding theme of 1 Corinthians 15 of resurrection, uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the hope that it gives us of resurrection from the dust to eternal life should we fall on sleep before the master returns. And the way we're going to tackle this uh, is to take each of those three themes in turn and look first at, at the theme in Ecclesiastes uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, and then move on to, to the second part, and then the third part. So there is the structure uh, of our study, just to uh, repeat it for clarity. So the preacher is introduced to us at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, and the word koheleth, the Hebrew word, uh, is the word that's translated as preacher, and it's defined in the concordances as a collector of sentences or a preacher in the assembly. 
I must admit, it had never occurred to me until uh, doing this study uh, that the very title of the book is telling us how relevant it should be uh, to each of us. Because if you remove the last three letters of the title of the book, you're left with ecclesias. Uh, and that is surely pointing us to the fact that the teaching of this book is highly relevant uh, to us all today. Now, this, this word, koheleth, translated as preacher, is only used in the book of Ecclesiastes. It occurs seven times, and I've put the references there on the screen. Let's just go back to chapter one, uh, and we can see the first three of those occurrences. Verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you come down to verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, and of course, when you put those verses together, it tells us beyond any doubt that the author of this book was Solomon, the son of David, who was king in Jerusalem. And as we say, um, the, book, the word only occurs in the book of Ecclesiastes, those seven times, those references on the screen, three in chapter one, three in chapter 12, and just one in the middle um, in chapter seven. And maybe the fact that it occurs seven times is significant. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with the significance of the number seven in scripture, the number of completion or divine perfection. And if we included the title uh, of the book in, in, in that number, then it occurs eight times. So we've got divine perfection, the summed up, I suppose, in that phrase in chapter 12, the conclusion of the whole matter, everything that we really need to know about um, in relation to human life uh, and death and the hope beyond that is summed up in the teaching of this book, the conclusion of the whole matter. But because if we include the title, it occurs eight times, it's pointing us to something beyond, to a new beginning, a new creation. And that surely is what's brought before us in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection to eternal life. And so straight away, we've got an exhortation uh, to us to gather together, to listen to the preacher, the one who has collected together divinely inspired words and sentences, and to listen to what the preacher has to say to us in the ecclesial assembly, uh, and to take heed to those words. And that word for the preacher comes from uh, a common Hebrew root verb in the Old Testament, the word kahal, meaning to gather or to assemble. And it can be used in both good and bad senses. So let's just look at one or two examples. Come with me to that passage in Exodus 32. Um, and this, uh, as we said, is the context concerning the golden calf. Uh, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount... The people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. So they gathered together in rebellion um, and they influenced Aaron, sadly, to uh, construct the golden calf. Uh, and we know that they degraded themselves in the way that they bowed down to it. Uh, and there are other examples of the use of that word in a bad sense. Uh, we've put two other examples there on the screen, one from Numbers chapter 16, where Korah and his associates gathered together in rebellion against 
Moses and the authority of Yahweh that was vested in Moses. Uh, and the other example there in Ezekiel 38, still future, of course, or at least a, 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 a process that's beginning to, to, to gather. Um, Gog and his host who will assemble themselves to come down into the land of Israel. And in those passages, that, that word is translated as, as either to gather or to assemble. But it's also used in a good sense. If you're still in Exodus, just turn on to chapter 35, where we read in verse 1, Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, these are the words which Yahweh hath commanded that ye should do them. So there the children of Israel were all gathered together to listen to Yahweh's words spoken through his mouthpiece, through Moses, uh, as an instruction to them. Similarly, um, in Numbers chapter 8, and we won't go there in the interest of time, um, the chapter records for us the rituals associated with the consecration of the priests, um, and the instruction there was to gather the whole assembly of the children of Israel. They all came together uh, to, to witness the consecration of the priests who were, of course, to act on their behalf um, between them and their God. And let's look at that, that other example there in, in 1 Kings, because uh, this involves Solomon, who, of course, uh, as we noted already, was the author uh, uh, the divine penman, if you like, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And 1 Kings 8 records the dedication of the temple that Solomon had built under divine instruction in Jerusalem. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled, that's the word, assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves, there it is again, they assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So there you have some uh, examples of the use of, of that word. It, it struck me when I was <clears throat> looking through these, these notes again uh, in preparation for giving this study today, that this word is as a particular resonance in the circumstances in which we find ourselves at the moment uh, in the middle of this pandemic. It has to, to do on every occasion with people gathering themselves together in the same place to listen to the words of God. Just come to another example of it um, in Leviticus chapter 8. Um, we read this just a few days ago uh, in our daily readings. Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 3. The instruction given by God uh, with regard to, to the consecration of, of the priests. Verse 3. Gather thou, and that's, uh, that's the word, gather thou all the congregation together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and Moses did as Yahweh commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They were gathered together physically in one place. And I think this is especially, where possible, the requirement that God places on us in relation to the breaking of bread. Um, 
three times in 1 Corinthians 11, a chapter that we often um, quote in, 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 in introducing um, the emblems, um, Paul refers to the brethren and sisters in the Ecclesia of Corinth as being gathered together. And on one occasion in verse 20, he says they were gathered together into one place. And he meant physically because he draws the contrast between on the, on the one hand, eating their own food at home and then gathering together in one place to uh, keep the memorial feast. Now, of course, we have to recognize that there are all sorts of different circumstances that as individuals and ecclesias we face. For example, um, those ecclesias that haven't got their own halls uh, may not have access to those halls at the moment and that's beyond their control. And there are individuals who may be suffering chronic illness and it would be inappropriate for them at the present time to gather with others. But nevertheless, I would suggest, brothers and sisters, that where it is possible to do so, we should, particularly at the memorial meeting, gather together into one place. It's true, of course, that we have to be subject unto the higher powers, but it's also true, as the Apostle Peter uh, says in Acts, that we ought to obey God rather than men. And we have to make sure we've got the right balance between those sets of rules. That was a digression. Let's come back to um, focus of our study. The preacher, this word koheleth, used only in a good sense in Ecclesiastes. Yes, in a good and a bad sense in different parts of scripture, but only in a good sense in Ecclesiastes. And as we said, mainly in chapter 1 and 12, three occurrences in each and just one in the middle of the book. So it, it sits, this word, almost like bookends to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's just turn over to, to look at the, the occurrences of it quickly in chapter 12, verse 8. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought out, sought to find out acceptable words and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. And having pulled all those wise sentences and words together, he says, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep the commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And he's pulled together divine wisdom on life, mortality, death, and our responsibility to God. So what about this theme in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, if you open your Bibles at that chapter, you find at the very beginning of the chapter, we come across the word preach. In fact, there are two different Greek words used for preach in 1 Corinthians 15. First one occurs in verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Uh, and the word in those two verses is the, the Greek word euangelizo. Um, we get the word evangelize or evangelist from it, from that Greek word. Uh, and it means to show glad tidings or to bring good news. Uh, and that clearly relates to the gospel of salvation. There's another word, another Greek word that's used in this chapter and is also in the King James Version translated as preach. Verse 11. 
Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And verse 14, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Uh, and that's the, the, the verb karosao or the related noun in verse 14, kerugma. Uh, and that means to proclaim the gospel as a herald. Now, clearly, those two words complement each other. Uh, the gospel is good tidings, good news of salvation. And the apostle proclaimed it as a herald, announced it as something that was absolutely vital for men and women to hear, a matter of life and death. And that good news is summarized in a series, excuse me, in a series of phrases through this chapter. Um, the gospel, the resurrection of the dead. Now is Christ raised, Christ the first fruits. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so the ecclesia was to gather together to hear this good news of the gospel concerning the resurrection and to keep it in memory. Remember that's it there back in verse two. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Can you see the total contrast to hearing the burden of Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 15, the preacher is bringing forth the gospel, proclaiming it as a herald, speaking not of death, but of the resurrection of the dead, of Christ being raised as the first fruits, giving us the hope of achieving victory over death through God's good grace toward us. So let's move on to the second section of our study, labor and vanity things under the sun. Those are words and phrases that occur repeatedly in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then we'll contrast that with um, our theme phrase for this first study that occurs in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sorry, going the wrong way in the slides. So labor, it's a theme that runs right through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and just to emphasize that, we've listed there all the references on the screen. If anybody uh, wants access to the slides afterwards, uh, they're very welcome to have them. That's all the list of the occurrences of the word labor there in Ecclesiastes. And it's worth noting, I think, if you just go back to Ecclesiastes chapter one, that where it first occurs in verse three, it's associated with man, the Hebrew Adam. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3, What profit hath a man of all his labour which he taketh under the sun? And you see then the thread that runs right through the book. And it's the word amal, the Hebrew word amal. Uh, and it's defined in the concordance as labour, mischief, misery and travail. Uh, and the overriding meaning of the word, I think, is very clear from, from those different definitions. This word amal occurs 55 times in the whole of the Old Testament. 21 of those occurrences, so well over a third, are in the book of Ecclesiastes. So very special emphasis is given by the spirit of inspiration to this theme of labour, mischief, misery, travail, in the book of 
Ecclesiastes were, were clearly meant to give heed to the words of the preacher and take careful note of this word and all that it implies. So what is it linked to? We'll go back to that third verse of chapter one. What profit hath a man of all his labour which he taketh, where? Under the sun. So it has to do with human affairs, labour in human affairs, matters concerning man and the earth. It's concerned with, with human desire and with rejoicing that is turned to vanity. Come on to chapter 2 and verse 10. Solomon says, whatsoever mine eyes desired, the human desire, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labour. Notice it's his labour. And this was my portion of all my labour. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labour that I had laboured to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. He'd not held, any, held back from anything that he wanted to do. Initially, he'd rejoiced in it. But when he stood back and contemplated it, he realised it was merely vanity and that there was no profit in human affairs under the sun. Indeed, he goes on to say in verse 18 that he hated his labour. Verse 18, yea, I hated all my labour which I'd taken under the sun. And verse 20, he says, it, it just led him to despair. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labour which I took under the sun. You see, the burden of this labour it, it is really being emphasised quite considerably, is it not? And in that little section of chapter two, he goes on to observe that even the labour of a good man may be left to one who has not laboured, who doesn't really deserve it. Go back to verse 18 again. Yea, I hated all my labour which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And he who knoweth, and who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labour wherein I laboured, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also a vanity, another cause for despair, because... All his labour would be nothing to him once he returned to dust and might be inherited from a man who was a fool. And he decided quite rightly that that was vanity. And the result is despair and a total focus on this mortal life, on things under the sun. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labour. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. Now, now that's a slightly curious verse, I suggest, in, in the overall context of, of Ecclesiastes, because you could read it as saying, well, actually, um, God wants us to enjoy all these uh, human affairs. But I don't think that's what the verse is saying. I suggest that what it's saying is that this is a lesson from God that works under the sun, labour under the sun, is vanity and ultimately turns to dust. And that's what is from the hand of God, the lesson that is being brought before us. And I think we can demonstrate that by, by a couple of passages. Let's look, look quickly at these passages. Isaiah chapter 22. 
words, of course, which are quoted elsewhere uh, in scripture. Um, the context here concerns um, the Assyrian invasion, I think, um, of, of um, Judah in the time of Hezekiah. Um, and the people didn't take heed to the warning of King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. Uh, verse 12 of Isaiah 22. In that day did the Lord Yahweh of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth because the Assyrians had invaded because of the sinfulness of the people. And what was their reaction? Behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Let's have a good time now, for we're only going to die anyway. And Jesus picks up the same theme in the New Testament in the parable of the rich fool. Luke chapter 12, we know the, the parable well. Uh, the man who uh, is ground for, brought forth plentifully. He was a rich man and he pulled down his barns to build bigger. Verse 19 of Luke chapter 12. I'll, I'll say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink and be merry. And in that night, his life was required of him. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And that word vanity occurs no less than 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's the list uh, on the screen. 37 out of a total of 64 occurrences in the Old Testament. So the more than half the occurrences of this word are in Ecclesiastes. I think verse 2 of chapter 1 must, must be unique in Scripture, in that the same word occurs no less than five times in the same verse. Chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. They hardly miss the emphasis on it. And notice also, uh, as I've uh, emphasised there on, on the screen, in a number of the occurrences where this word occurs, it is directly associated with death. Let's just take one example in chapter 3 and verse 19. That which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts, even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. The vanity is associated with death, death, with returning to dust. The Hebrew word is the word hebel, uh, translated variously as vanity, vain, or vapour, things which quickly vanish. You see them for a moment and then they're gone. Intriguingly, it's actually the name of Abel, the brother of Cain, who also, of course, quickly vanished because he was murdered by his brother. But, of course, as we're told in Hebrews, he being dead yet speaketh. He was a faithful man and he will rise again. He's almost pointing us to 1 Corinthians 15 again. The first occurrence of this word, Hebel, is in Deuteronomy 32, and it's associated with idols and idolatry, which again tells us something of the nature of vanity and how God views um, idols, things which will vanish like a vapour. Deuteronomy 32 
verse 17, give the context. They, speaking of Israel in the past, they sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, when, whom your fathers feared not. Verse 21, they have moved me to jealousy, says God, with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. That's the first occurrence of that word. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Their idols were mere vanity. And they provoked God to anger. And we noticed that this word is associated with futility, with frustration, with despair, with idolatry and with death, summed up perhaps in those words that also occur in Ecclesiastes, vexation of spirit. And also linked with labor and vanity is this phrase, under the sun. Now as a phrase, it, it's unique to the book of Ecclesiastes. And there are two words in, in the Hebrew, one for word under and one for sun. Curiously, uh, when I was uh, researching this, uh, the online Bible doesn't show a separate word for under. Um, but if you check in, uh, for example, Esword or printed concordances, both Strong's and Young's, they, they show that there is a separate Hebrew word for under. So under the sun, two words, uh, and it's a unique phrase, uh, I believe, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it, and it occurs, as we say there, 29 times in Ecclesiastes. So again, we can't miss the emphasis on this. We're being told about things under the sun and the vanity of them. And just note that word for sun, it's the word shemesh. It's the usual uh, Hebrew word for sun, occurs throughout the Old Testament. And the lesson, of course, is that man's works are vain. They involve labor. They will ultimately lead only to death when their focus is on things on the earth, things under the sun. There's the occurrences of that word, or rather that phrase in Ecclesiastes. Again, let's just, just look at one or two examples in chapter 9. Verse 3. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Verse 6. Also their love, their hatred, their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in any, anything that is done under the sun. And verse 9. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labour which thou takest under the sun. Uh, and there are other, other occurrences later on in the chapter. And those verses, of course, uh, are passages that, that we quote as first principle passages to illustrate the death state um, and the fact that those who live without a knowledge of God and his ways will return to dust and remain in the dust with no hope of resurrection, unconsciousness in the dust. That, that's the end of those who focus on things under the sun. Now, you come back to Genesis with me for a moment, please, brothers and sisters, to chapter 15. The first occurrence of the word Shemesh. It's always 
interesting to look at the first occurrence in scripture of, of any word and it's very often quite significant and instructive this isn't this passage doesn't include the phrase under the sun it's just the first occurrence of the word shemesh for some the context of course is, is abraham um he's just received um one version of the promises in the early verses of uh, chapter 15 and he then now enters into a solemn covenant with yahweh verse 12 of Genesis 15 and when the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and lo and horror of great darkness fell upon him so Abraham goes into a type of death when the sun was going down not quite the same phrase as under the sun but thematically it, it's a bit similar it, it's in relation to sunset obviously but it's as if in symbol the sun has gone down on his life the 17 came to pass that when the sun went down, there it is again, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces, and uh, a covenant is made uh, in the latter verses of that chapter. And as we well understand, that was a symbolic death for Abraham uh, in that deep sleep and horror of great darkness. But it's also ironic because Abraham is a man of faith, uh, and we know as the friend of God, he will be raised to eternal life. And we're going to come back to that particular point uh, about Abraham uh, in a few moments. Now let's go to labour in 1 Corinthians 15. And it occurs, the English word labour occurs twice in the last verse of the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. And although we got the word labour twice there in the King James Version, there's two different Greek words. The first occurrence is the word ergon. It's a common word in the New Testament, and it means a work or a deed or a product. In other words, it relates to, to something that is made or, or the outcome of labour, something that's worthwhile. Whereas kopos, which occurs fewer times, 19 times in the New Testament, and that's the, the Greek behind the second occurrence of the word labour there, means, um, well, the, the, the root meaning has the idea of to bewail or to lament. So it's clearly uh, labour, which is, which is hard labour, which is difficult, which brings difficulty and trouble uh, in, in carrying it out. Now, what that verse surely is saying to us is, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because that work is something that's profitable. You're producing something from it. You're, you're growing spiritually. You're edifying others. And you know that, that that type of labor, even though it might be difficult for you, might bring hardship and fatigue and persecution, possibly, as it did with the Apostle Paul. Um, you know it's not in vain because it's in the Lord. Uh, and that's the point. This labour is not in vain. And what a contrast that is with the book of Ecclesiastes, where everything is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But if our labour is in the Lord, and it's that profitable labour bringing forth something worthwhile, it's not in vain. Now, interestingly, there are three different Greek words, all translated as vain in 1 Corinthians 15. It's instructive to, to look through these occurrences. Verse 2, 
speaking of the gospel which Paul has preached, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. If you notice it's conditional, there's a positive implication. It's, I've preached this gospel, if you keep it in memory, then you won't have believed in vain, unless, so you've got if and unless. So, yes, there's that Ike failure without cause, but there's a positive implication in the way it's used. Down to verse 17, different Greek word. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. And that word is defined in the concordance as being devoid of truth. It's useless. Well, that's true. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is indeed useless. It's, it's worthless. It's not based on truth. And we have no hope. But again, you notice the conditional word, if, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. But of course, Christ was raised from the dead. Now is Christ raised. Therefore, our faith is not vain. And the third word occurs three times. The word kenos, defined as vain, empty, devoid of truth again. Verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Verse 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. And verse 58, uh, the last verse, the last phrase, you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. But again, you notice the positive implications. Verse 10, not in vain. Uh, verse 14, if Christ be not risen, then your faith is vain, but Christ is risen. Therefore, our faith is not vain. And uh, the last verse, our labour is not in vain if it's in the Lord. So, Contrast again with Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the preacher. But Paul is saying here through the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15, because Christ is risen, then our faith is not in vain, nor is our labour in the Lord. So the positive reason is, of course, the resurrection of Christ. So our labour is not in vain if it's in the Lord. And we suggest, brothers and sisters, that that phrase, in the Lord, our labour is not in vain if it's in the Lord, is a deliberate contrast with the phrase under the sun in Ecclesiastes. Everything that's under the sun is associated with man, with Adam, with death, uh, with labour. But if our labour is in the Lord, then it's not in vain. I go back to that passage we looked at in, in Genesis 15 in relation to Abraham. Though the sun went down, Abraham wasn't looking down at the earth. He wasn't concentrating on things under the sun. The chapter tells us quite specifically that before or, or when these promises were given, he had first looked toward heaven. Go back to verse 5. God brought Abraham forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. He said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am Yahweh that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And so the covenant was made, as we read in verse 17. When the sun went down, it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces, 
And in the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, uh, and so on. Because Abraham obeyed God's command and looked toward heaven, as opposed to looking down to the earth, things under the sun, his perspective was on divine matters, on heavenly matters, not human matters. And therefore, he's a man of faith, and he entered into that covenant and will be raised. So we, we now know he sleeps in faith. He's been sleeping in the dust of the earth for many centuries, but he died in faith, and he will rise again to eternal life. And there's just a list very quickly of that uh, there are various phrases in 1 Corinthians 15, which uh, I think are consistent with that, that phrase in the last verse, in the Lord. Gospel when you stand, sleep in Christ, hope in Christ, in Christ. They are Christ's rejoicing in Christ Jesus, victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So put all those things together. They're summarized by that phrase in the Lord and our labor is not in vain. If we believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and allow it to influence our lives. Let's move on quickly to the, the third part of this study. Mortality and death in Ecclesiastes. Just go back very quickly to chapter 9, um, which emphasises this point for us. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, um, verse 2. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, and so on. Verse 6. Their love, their hatred, their envy is now perished, and neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Those who die without a knowledge of the truth will remain in the grave in the oblivion of death forever. And therefore, the advice is that we to, whatever we f our hands find to do, to do it with all our might while we have life and the opportunity. And that, that theme runs right through Ecclesiastes. We looked earlier at chapter three, beasts and all men die and return to dust. Uh, and in chapter 12, of course, is that passage which so graphically sets out the gradual decline of mortality ending in old age and the return to dust. But what a contrast in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. For since by man came death, that's Ecclesiastes, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and that's Ecclesiastes, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then you've got a series of phrases throughout the rest of that chapter which highlight that that contrast in verse 44 you've got a contrast between a natural body and a spiritual body in verse 45 a contrast between first adam first man adam who was made a living soul a mortal man in contrast with the last adam the lord jesus christ who was made a quickening or life-giving spirit verse 47 a contrast between the first man who's of the earth, earthy, and we're back again in Ecclesiastes, vanity, labour under the sun. The contrast, the second man is the Lord from heaven. And of course that leads then on to uh, those wonderful verses at the, the end that, that conclude uh, that chapter, uh, the victory 
over the grave and over death. Let's just pick it up at verse 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And that, of course, is the victory and the redemption to which we look forward by God's grace. So what are the exhortations we draw from this study, brethren and sisters? Well, first of all, surely to lift ourselves above the profitless vanity of the world, things under the sun. To look up like Abraham did in response to God's command. In, and he, in, as a result, he received the promises to inherit the land and he entered into that solemn covenant. Look up, not focus on things under the sun. And remember that we are in the Abrahamic covenant through our faith and through our baptism and through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we remain faithful, we shall not all sleep, even though we might fall on sleep before Christ comes. We shall be raised to eternal life. And so we should give thanks for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And surely each week when we take part in the memorial meeting and we give thanks for the emblems and for what they represent, part of that is giving thanks for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because he died a sinless sacrifice and so the grave could not hold him. And we should also take hold of positive exhortations and there are positive exhortations even in that solemn book of Ecclesiastes. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. Take every opportunity to serve God while we have life. And especially for any young people who may be listening, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. So our conclusion, two passages, one from Ecclesiastes. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. Thank you.